Welcome to a new episode of Pancom Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez here to bring you another set of three, one, two, three coronavirus related interviews. If you've been following along, you know that we have been doing things a little differently around here rather than our usual long form interview show hosted by Chef Michael Beltran. We have been alternating between conversations with Mike about how things are going for his restaurant group during the COVID-19 pandemic and these shorter interviews conducted by me with a variety of people from the food world and beyond. In this episode, you'll hear from Pablo Zitzman, Susana Jimenez, and Enrique Hernandez. The first two deal in food, the third is in the tire business, but I think you'll find value in what they all had to share about the last couple of months. Pablo is a Colombian-born chef who won Miami Diner's Hearts with no-name Chinese in South Miami. Also, critical to his career, his appearance on one of the very first episodes of Pan Gong Podcast. If you want to get to know him a little better, uh, go and check out the interview that Mike did with Pablo back in July 2019. In this call, Pablo and I spoke about the executive chef position that he'd just started and unfortunately lost as a result of this economic shutdown, along with the project that he's taken on from his home kitchen to make ends meet while we uh, crawl toward a new normal, whatever that ends up being. To start here, tell me how this has been for you personally, because, uh, you know, I know that you have... Uh, not only your work, but also your family life. So everybody on your end is 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 good. Is everybody safe, healthy? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, everyone is um, taking care of themselves. Um, you know, the wife and the kids are, of course, with me, and you know, we're we're figuring things out as we go. And my my mom, my dad, my dad's wife, my sister, everyone that lives over here, everyone's pretty much. Um, taking care of themselves and, you know, they're taking care of themselves and they're just seeing what, what's going to come out out of this, you know? You know, like we just talked about before, let's kind of go through what the timeline looked for you, looked like for you, right? So yeah. what, what did you have going on back when, you know, things were what we might call normal? When everything was normal, um, you know, I had, I had a, I was the executive chef of a new hotel that is going to open up in Coral Gables. It's called Paseo de la Riviera. Uh, it's a really big project, you know, and um, we were we were just like right, like one month before opening. So we were fine tuning everything and we were taking care of all the things that we needed to take care of for the opening day. Um, and then, you know, we started hearing about the virus thing and we started hearing about, you know, other countries going in quarantine and we start getting a little bit nervous. Um, you know, ownership of the hotel was on top of on top of everything and they were communicating to us and we were communicating with each other and we were trying to figure out what the best case scenario was going to be like, what the worst case scenarios were gonna were, were, were gonna look like, you know, from budgets to, you know, employees. Um, considering, you know, furloughing people or laying people off, talking about all those things. Uh, so I would say that for a good chunk of the first two to three weeks of this whole pandemic thing and, you know, everyone just not knowing what to do, um, we were working from home. So I passed from, you know, being at the, you know, opening office for the hotel and doing all my numbers and all my menu writing and all my stuff 
uh, at the office uh, and getting ready to open. I was meeting with a lot of vendors and, you know, representatives and interviewing people, doing job fairs, everything. And we went from that. And then the company decided to, you know, send everyone home and everyone work from home. So on the second day of, uh, second or third day of I was working from home, um, I got a phone call. And my whole team had to be furloughed. So basically, you know, my sous chef, my XX sous, you know, assistant managers, general manager, all the management team that we were going to be opening the hotel with, um, they got laid off. You know, and the, uh, you know, it was a little not in my stomach, uh, like just thinking that 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 could have been me. You know, um, my best friend Giuliano, he's an amazing chef. He's my XX sous. Um, and you know, he had just started the job like a month before he had left, left his previous restaurant and then he was with no job, you know, and another guy that works, worked for me, that's called Chris, um, really young kid, you know, he, he has been, you know, around Miami's best kitchens for as long as I can remember. And, um, you know, also he had no job, you know, and I was blasting, you know, I was trying to help them out. Um, as much as I could, you know, to put them in, in places to, you know, give them a hand when they needed. Um, little did I knew that my time was going to come soon. So I work after that, I worked from home for, I would say for three more weeks, I would say. Um, I have two kids. I live in a, in a two bedroom apartment. Um, so trying to do budgets and trying to do all this crazy opening of a hotel thing in a small apartment with two screaming little kids not being able to leave my house it was kind of crazy right right yeah um but i was thankful dude because at the end of the day i had a job and my you know the team the team that 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 we had it was gone but you know it was two of us left he was the director of, of, of restaurants and myself um and we were just trying to get as much work as we could you know, before opening and trying to, you know, do the job of five people between the both of us. And we were, we were, we were basically just going through the motions and trying to get everything out and trying to, you know, get everything done. And then, you know, I was having lunch one day, I woke up that day and I was like, mm, I don't know, man, I don't feel, I don't feel like this is going to last too long. I stopped work. I stopped. I stopped watching news. I didn't want to keep stressing myself and stressing my wife and stressing, you know, my family. So I decided not to watch any more news and just focus on my job and enjoy my family. And then that day during lunch, uh, I was having lunch with my family. They called me up and they told me that um, my position in the in the hotel was going to be eliminated. Um, during this time and also moving forward in the future. So even post-pandemic, um, that meant that I was not going to have a job. And I and I basically went from, you know, having a big title with a business card to match with it um, in a really big hotel um, to basically selling Chinese food out of the trunk of my car. Um, so that's basically what I've done since the whole thing started until now. Um, on the third day of unemployed so sorry let me let me let me stop you there just because i I, just to get a little bit of clarity because before you got to that point in the story my assumption would have been right that if the hotel unless the hotel plans to unless they're abandoning the project altogether uh Mm -hmm. 
walk walk me through that. Like, do you have any sense of of how that is? That why why wouldn't why would they make any decision other than hey, we're furloughing everybody? But obviously, at some point, we have to have a kitchen staff, and so we'll bring everybody back. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing the thing is that my my position in the hotel, I was uh, I was an exec chef, but there's a culinary director, right? There's Got somebody it. else above me, and uh, basically just seeing the budgets and seeing the numbers and seeing projections, and you know, the project took a little bit longer than it, it should have uh, to open up or to get to the opening phase. Um, and seeing how the whole world is going to change now and how slow things are going to be. And, you know, basically everything led itself to say, hey, you know, we're not going to open with so much hype and we're not going to open the, the hotel so busy and we're not going to, um, yeah. you know, basically just have the momentum that we that, that we wanted to have. So there are certain things that we need to change, and they were pretty cool about it. I mean, I, I and I completely understand because at the end of the day, that's the right business decision. You know, when you when you when you when you're looking at it from from that point of view, it is what it is. We're all we're, we are all in this together. You know what I mean? It's not like there's there's everyone is going through the struggle in a different way. You know? Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much it. I mean, it was just like, you know. It was basically uh, to on their eyes and to their eyes. Basically, after the whole pandemic thing goes away and the world goes back to whatever normal is going to be, um, basically there's not going to be a place for me over there. Right. right. Um, and that just like that that kicked me in the in the, in the balls pretty pretty hard. Um, you know, I I was you know I was lucky enough to be on payroll two and a half three weeks. Um, after everyone got laid off. Um, and basically, I just found myself staring at the computer screen and just like applying for unemployment and seeing what to do and updating my resume and, um, you know, figuring out what I had to do. Um, and then just a light bulb went on my, on my head, you know. The switch went on. I used to have no-name Chinese. Um, lots of people wanted no-name Chinese food. There were, there were times that I was doing no-name Chinese food catering and cooking classes and stuff like that, even after we closed the restaurant. Um, so I managed to log in into no-name Chinese's uh, Instagram account because uh, I had the password. For a long time, I was the PR guy for, for the restaurant. And uh, I decided just to, you know, make it, make it my own. So I basically created like a ghost restaurant in my house where I do no name Chinese food. Uh, it has a different name and the name is uh, Zitz Sum. Um, and that's what I've been doing basically since, since I got laid off. So I, uh, yeah, I was going to say, t- talk a bit about, um, you know, cause I, I see the, those posts and every time that I see a post yeah. and think like, Oh, okay, cool. Let me place an order. Then I tap to the next post and it says, sorry, we're sold out for the next two weeks. So yeah. at, at least in that sense, it seems like it's it's going as well as you could have hoped it would go given the circumstances. I was I was actually I was actually not expecting uh not expecting this to be as crazy as it got. Um, you know, I just came up with a small menu and I was like, I mean, I, I really don't know if anybody cares about us anymore. Um you know, I mean, we closed the restaurant a year, almost a year ago. So, 
Um, and then I got one order and then I had, I got two orders and I was like, okay, perfect. And then I got, next thing I know, I, I'm going into my private messages into the requests on Instagram and I have 209 messages within th- in, in three days. Right. Um, and then I'm, I just start taking orders and trying to organize myself. Um, and basically what I do is I take five orders a day. Um, small, large, whatever it is. I don't do any more than five. Um, I try to save myself a little bit of time on Sunday so I can do grocery shopping and I could, I basically, I can spend some time with my wife and, and I'll go to restaurant depot or do whatever I need to do. And then the other days of the week, I'm basically rolling dumplings and doing Chinese pancakes and, uh, doing fried rice and just my house turned into a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Um, I had, I had to get the guys from Perla coffee, which they're fucking amazing. They, uh, they got me like a fishing cooler. So I have the fishing cooler and I'm just like, you know, every day, every day I wake up in the morning, six, seven AM in the morning and I just do everything fresh, put it in the cooler, re-ice, start folding dumplings, grab a cup of coffee, make breakfast for the kids, make breakfast for my wife, keep working. So every day at 6 PM, I'll just load my car. Uh, put a bunch of Chinese food inside of the car and drive downstairs and just wait for people to pick up the food. Um, It's a blessing in the sense that I'm paying the bills with that um, for now. Um, Trying to, at the same time, think about a business plan to execute this uh, the right way um, in a real restaurant, in a real place. Um, There has been some talks around certain people about the possibility of me popping up or using their kitchens or eventually opening a restaurant. Um, the idea is there, um, but I just got to see what's going to happen after this whole crazy thing Yeah, that goes away or it's not going to go away, but eventually, you know, we're going to have to open up again. So how, how, how is, how our restaurants are going to look like when things open up? Yeah. question you know so i, I want to um, get a, i, I want to get yeah. a little deeper into one aspect of this so, and let's yeah. let's start by uh you know some people who are listening to this either maybe had never been to no name or maybe they're not even from the yeah. area so let's kind of get yeah. into a little bit of like what the food actually is and then also yeah. talk about you know what your experience has been because for I'll, I'll give you an example like my mom has been yeah. Basically doing that, but for many years, right before all this began, she would do like catering for parties from her house. Um, uh-huh. I actually did a, a, a lasagna delivery earlier this morning. Um, so, uh, but in her case, right, it's, I mean, she's got things that she goes back to, but she has not branded herself as like, you know, this is a, a Cuban thing or and much less an Asian thing. Talk about whether you, yeah. what your experience has been sourcing the ingredients for this, because especially now I have to think that uh, you know that that maybe yeah. is is not the simplest task. Exactly. Well, um, yeah. To I mean, to remember, what's that place that you guys have? I don't know how many followers in, in, in Arkansas. Where is it at? Oh, uh, Salina, Kansas. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that this this interview is going to be together with an interview with my sister, who's the food scientist from Salina, Kansas. <laughs> that's fucking awesome, dude. Yeah, I, I mean, I learning Chinese was a, um, a small restaurant in South Miami. 
Um, we opened up, let's see, three years ago. It lasted two years. And I was just doing basically my take on Chinese food. Um, I had the blessing um, to go to China and to go to Japan and, you know, go to Hawaii and just learn from the OGs, you know. I have, I have a really extensive Asian fine dining food background, so I, I've always gravitated to, towards Asian food. So basically, No Name Chinese uh, had a good following. Um, I think that the, the, the community in Miami were really receptive um, and supportive um, towards No Name. So when we closed, um, you know, we broke, we broke a few hearts. Um, and, um, nothing. I mean, there has been a lot of talks in the past about rebranding and redoing it, but, you know, lots of things had, have happened since, since then. So I basically took another route. I mean, and that's basically the position that I was in before doing this whole thing all over again. Um, but I've always carried it with me, you know, I didn't want it to be the one trick pony guy that, oh, he was really successful doing Chinese food. So this is what, you know, he's going to stick to forever and ever. But then when I saw myself in a position where I had to put food on my table and I had to take care of my kids and I had to pay rent and I had to, you know, make ends meet, um, I had to go and I had to like take that ace out of my, out of my pocket. Um, but I've, I, I gotta tell you, Nick, that you know, for the past year and a half, uh, since we closed the restaurant, you know, I've done I've done a lot of things, and nothing has made me happier than whatever I'm doing right now. Even though that I am sleeping three hours a day, um, and I am just stressing out and trying to do the best that I can, try to replicate the food from No Name Chinese in my apartment. Um, I have never been happier because I'm doing it for myself. Right. You know, I am. I am. I am. And, and and hopefully this will last even after, you know, everything goes back to normal. But I'm doing it for myself and, and I am doing it because I love it. So I don't mind sleeping three, two hours a day and just waking up the next day and rolling dumplings because that's that's something that I really, really, really love, you know. Um, so it, it, it brought me a lot of joy. You know, I was I was not happy doing what I was doing before. Um, I had a job because I had to have a job, but it was not something that I was really looking forward to. Um, but now that I just decided to basically bring that back to my life and just doing it all over again, it, it, it reminded me why I love learning Chinese so much. And I think that that also reminds people when they're eating the food why they love Nonim so much. It was because we really gave a fuck about everything, right? Right. Um, you know, and it's been it's been a challenge because, you know, sadly, uh, you know, Chinese markets and and Asian grocery stores, they don't have a lot of shit right now. I mean, they do, but at the same time, they're running they're running out of product. Um, thankfully, No Name Chinese was a restaurant that a lot of things that we were doing there. Um, they were fresh, you know, the, the wrappers were fresh, the dumplings were fresh, the sauces were fresh. If I wanted to do a hoisin sauce, I didn't go to the Chinese market to get the hoisin. I was doing the hoisin myself. Um, so I, I was able to get a lot of those tools and I was able to learn a lot of, uh, learn how to make a lot of those things. 
So it's not being as hard as as um, as you would think that it is, uh, but it's mainly because I am basically doing everything from scratch. Like all the doughs I do in the morning, and all the fillings I do, Sunshine Provisions, which is a local uh, pro, uh, meat and poultry company, they, they give me the meat, right? So the same guys that I use for the meat at the restaurant are the same guys that are delivering the, rest, the, the, the meat to my house. Um, you know, I use a couple small vendors here and there um, and change the menu as I go and as I find things. Um, and just trying to, you know, make a living out of it, man. Yeah. So just to, uh, to close, or at least, you know, unless there's something else that you want to get into that we haven't yet, um, talk a bit about, uh, you know, right now we're clearly not in a normal, but I don't think that anybody yeah. really expects, at least in the short and medium term, that what is on yeah. the other side of this is the old normal, right? It's going to be a new normal. Yeah. Who knows what? Different. Yeah, who knows what that's going to look like? But um, yeah. how much thought? And uh, you know, obviously, everybody is sort of like, sort of in in the mode of just putting out the current fire in front of them. But yeah, how much thought have you been able to give to, you know, what this looks like on the other side for you from that business model standpoint that you were talking about? Because in all likelihood, consumers are going to behave in a way that maybe you have to keep some version of what you're doing now in a way that you wouldn't yeah. have if you were doing this a year ago. So just kind of walk yeah. me through where you are in your head there of like what six months or yeah. a year from now looks like. Yeah. Look, I think, I think that one of the things that I am that, that I think that people stop going to Chinese restaurants uh, because they're afraid, right? There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of wrong things that have been said about Chinese people. And there's just like this stigma that now it's going to be even worse, right? And I find myself being a little bit advocate of just like calling that bullshit out and saying that that's not true. To my benefit, um, I am feeling that void of people not wanting to order from a Chinese restaurant, right? Uh, which is great in some way, but Chinese restaurants are also small businesses, right? They are the the, same, the Chinese guy that has a Chinese store down in Pinecrest. You know, it's as important as the guy that has the you know raw bar or the seafood restaurant in another neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. um, so support is important. Um, it's really hard for me to put myself in six six months from now because I really don't know what's going to happen. And it's frightening because I got to think about the future and I got to think about the fact that I have two kids and a wife that I, that I have to take care of. And this living day by day thing, it's fine for now because we're making it work. Uh, but not knowing if I'm going to be able to do it, to keep doing this from home first. And second, what is the market going to look like when this whole thing ends, right? Right. So when I'm writing my business plan and when, I'm, when, when, I, am, when I am basically uh, running the numbers and trying to find my projections of what I want to do, I am trying to look at different scenarios. I'm trying to look at the scenario where everything's going to be takeout, right? Um, so basically open just a takeout restaurant. There's no seats. There's no nothing. Just basically you come in. And you grab whatever you want, and then and then you go home. Um, 
So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two is just basically do a ghost kitchen and uh, or a ghost restaurant in, in, in a kitchen and just basically do delivery, right? But the delivery game is going to change now. Um, you know, the companies are – the, the delivery companies, they need to figure out, you know, percentages. And, 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 and I think that we all are already in a position where we can demand a, lot, a, a little bit more from them. Um, so that's going to change. So how is the food going to get from the restaurant to the consumer, right? So I need to think about the infrastructure. And the third one is, of course, a brick-and-mortar restaurant, uh, which is my dream. Um, and how is that going to look like, right? So, you know, if my if my year projections were X amount of money, then for the first six months, is it going to be 50% capacity? Then my then I need to make sure that I shrink that by 50%. Um, it's a lot of variables, Nick. I, I am I am still trying to figure out and try to wrap my head around um, what the future looks like. Right. It's really uncertain. It's really uncertain, um, but it motivates me to reinvent myself and to think about ways uh, to make this work. Um, and the only way to make it work is also saving money, right? Yeah. Um, but not not a lot of us we can afford to do that, especially now. You know. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that you know. We just gotta wait, man. We gotta wait and see. You know, I, I just, I, it, it's, it's fucking scary, man. Um, uh, yeah. Let me. Uh, um, I know that I had said that last thing was the was the last thing, but you know, you've been doing this from your home. I wonder whether, and maybe you haven't even had an opportunity to like, you know, dive deeper into this issue because, of course, you're in it and you're trying to make the food and deliver it and the whole thing, but. Uh-huh. Moving forward, I imagine that there are going to be a lot of people who uh, turn to the kind of, you know, cooking from home that you're doing, even if only like as a stopgap or whatever. Um, Yeah. What have you learned? And and I ask because I have some personal experience with this just in my own, you know, family with loved ones who've done this in varying ways with like the regulations and the laws that surround this, right? Because I think one of the interesting things is that we're going to have a lot of people like you who are very qualified and who should be trusted, even though they're working from home to, you know, uh, do things the right way. But I I think that there's probably a lot of like red tape that is in the way there, right? Because it's no longer just a bunch of like unqualified abuelas (laughs) making beans in their house. Now, you know, you have a guy like you, so what have you learned about that and and do you have any thoughts on like moving forward into this new normal what should change and and what's standing in the way? I mean, you know, I, every day when I open Instagram, I see more people doing things from home. Um and I see a lot of chefs doing things from home. I see chef Royal from Mandolin, he's doing amazing lumpias. And, you know, this guy, Greg from Ogrek's Pizza, I don't know if you've seen it. The pizza's really good. Oh, I'm dying you know, he's that. doing. <laughs> ah, yeah, it's fucking bomb, man. It's, it's really, it's really good. You know, so you see all this young talent that does not have the means to open a restaurant. And they're, now they have the time, you know, like to try the things that they always wanted to do, you know. 
And there's a lot of us that, you know, we want to try those things. So we want to try the victory type style pizza or we want to try the lumpias or we want to try you know pablo's known pablo's chinese food or whatever it is so the only thing that it's concerning for me and i wake up every day thinking about it is that if this continues to be the way that it is and this is going to be the norm um eventually you know somebody's going to say something is going to be like all right so you guys are basically selling things from home and what are the regulations? What what what's the what's what's the sanitary um, conditions that you guys have at home, right? Because the thing is that, for example, I sell dumplings and I have pork and I have chicken, you know, and I know what I'm doing and I take care of the same way that I do things from the restaurant. I do things from home, right? But a lot of people, but a lot of people don't, right? Um, so it's 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 a really fine line, and I think that right now we're all basically just like playing with it because we have to do it, right? Um, and we have to you know pay the bills. Um, but I, I just what 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 do you think? Like, you know, it, 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 there's gonna come a point where somebody's gonna come and say, "Hey, you can't do this shit anymore." Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you you think you you have to figure that at some point, right? It it becomes just a question of like the authorities are going to go back to work at some point too, right? And and what I mean by that is, if, and just to be clear, like I'm not even just talking about safety issues. Like there are regulations on the books and I don't want to get into how you do things because, yeah. you know, maybe one of our 22 listeners <laughs> is involved in this somehow. Uh, yeah. but, but there are regulations surrounding, for example, uh, uh, how you're accepting payments, right? So there are some Correct. rules there about like whether you can take electronic payments or not. Then there are rules about whether you're shipping. Of course, you're not going to ship any dumplings, so this doesn't affect you. But if Correct. there's somebody who's baking cookies yeah. from their home, technically, you're not allowed to ship the cookies, even if they are safe shipped, uh, yeah. unless you're working from a commercial kitchen. So I I do worry that, you know, the new normal is still going to be a little bit of this, like, you know, it doesn't make sense to open a brick-and-mortar space or we're going to test out concepts yeah. from home. And there, I mean... It takes having an attorney on retainer <laughs> to stay inside the lines on all this stuff, and you know, yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's me, concerning to me. To me, that's that's the scariest thing, you know, because you know this is working out for me, and 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 and, and granted, that I I am carrying with me the weight of a restaurant that it was successful in certain ways, right? And one of the ways that the restaurant was successful, it was people liked the food and people liked the service, right? So. I I am being really really lucky right now that I was that that I'm able to carry that, and for now this is the job for me. From now I'm not thinking about the hotel or I'm not thinking about applying for a job. I'm trying to you know get as much out of this as, as I can, to then you know keep you know planting my seeds in the right places with this concept. But there's gonna come a point where. I'm not going to be able to do this shit from home for a lot of reasons, sanitary or just the fact that I run, run out of space or I do, you know, my, my, my neighbors complain, you know, yeah. like I'm cooking Chinese food for my house, man. Yeah. You know, I have to keep the doors locked, the, the doors closed, closed from, from, from the rooms and, you know, open up the doors in my living room right now. It's basically the expo station of a restaurant, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, I mean, people are Ven 
people send me money through Venmo and I get cash payments and I get all those things and it's great, you know, but one, I have to make sure that, you know, I pay my share of that money to our government. Right. Right, right, Um, and two, um, you know, it's, even though that I am a trained chef and I've, I know how to work myself around a kitchen and I'm clean and everything. I'm from my fucking house. I'm cooking from my house, you know? Um, so I really don't know, man. I really don't know. It's fucking scary. I'm trying to get it. I'm trying, I'm trying to squeeze as much as I can out of it. Um, and then we can, we can see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, it's stripping away all of the, you know, uh, whether it goes well or goes badly, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And I just, I really hope that all of the, like the sense of, let's call it solidarity that we've seen among people in the food industry, uh, is sort of channeled into modernizing all of those regulations, because there's no reason why it should even be a question whether somebody pays you cash or by Venmo or whether you hire somebody to take them the food instead of you doing it yourself. Um, so I, I really hope that, that there's, that there's a push to like really look forward, uh, at, at the reality that, that we need to, I think, set like the infrastructure and the systems that make this kind of thing possible, even if people only want to do it temporarily. So we'll yeah, see. man, I think, I think the, 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 well, there's a lot of sil- silver linings that we can do we can do, do from from this you know the first one is that this is this is also allowing you know business owners i'm not talking only restaurants but i'm talking about any business that is a non-essential business um that you need to reinvent yourself you know yeah. this is going to happen this is going to happen next year or you know during the fall where this thing is going to be a common denominator now moving forward you know, worst, less, whatever, but we're going to have more of this shit happening, right? So how do you morph your business and your business plan or how do you morph and change the way that you run your business in order for you to survive when things like this happen, you know? So being able to reinvent yourself is important, but, you know, not a lot of people can do that because a lot of people, they're just surviving, even virus or no virus, they're just getting by, right? Um, but now, you know, lots of restaurants are seeing the things that, what, I mean, just, why did it took a fucking pandemic for people to speak up about fucking Uber Eats and Postmates, right? Because we were okay with that shit before, right? We were okay paying 34, 35%. Mm-hmm. Why? You know? And it takes a pandemic for us to say, you know what? Fuck you. We're not going to use you. Right? So my point with this is that even though that those things are easy, because yes, I mean, people just like basically they order from their phone and somebody somebody just shows up to a restaurant, they pick up the food and they take it somewhere else. Why can't we create systems like that? Right? Why can't we just have a badass delivery system on our own that we can use and we can make we can make better? Or, or why can we just be pickup only? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So to me, to me, finding ways to make things better, it's going to be one of the good things that we can take away from this. Um, and the last thing is the sense of community. Um, I've been living in Miami for 13 years now. And um, 
what I have seen uh, the past two months, I have, even though that Miami food and beverage community is really tight and it's awesome, but I haven't seen something like this before ever. Everyone is supporting each other. Everyone is posting things. Um, everyone is just like being happy to support each other. Uh, there's no, at least to me, but there's no fucking influencers trying to get a dime out of you or trying to get some free food or no, the, even some of the guys that I had, that I had talked shit about and some of the guys that I have said, I will never give you anything for free. They're without asking for anything without even, you know, asking for an order or whatever it is, the reposting, the, the things that I am doing and the things that a lot of people around the city are doing. And in my case, nobody has come to me and said, hey, you know, I can help you get more followers if you give me an order of dumplings. They just do it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, seeing the things that Michael does at Ariete and Shogs and all that stuff is beautiful. You know, every time that I go there, I am so surprised and so amazed on how engaged his management team is and how driven and how passionate and how proud they are to work working from there. Um, all the farms and around town, all the small guys, you know, everyone's making bread, everyone's giving bread away, everyone's giving cookies, everyone's just taking care of each other. Everyone's really thinking about each other. And, and that's a beautiful thing, you know? So I think that after this, our food and beverage community is going to be stronger. Um, and uh, whoever survives, I hope that everyone does. Um, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna come out of this good. Good stuff, man. Well, on that note, I know that I've kept you on the phone a lot longer than I said I would. Um, but I, I think that uh, that this is one that a lot of people will take important things away from. So thanks for, for taking the time. And hopefully sometime soon we'll do it again in person with dumplings and fritas all over the table. Oh. Uh, which, of course, means that I contribute nothing. Because <laughs> neither of those things will so come from me. <laughs> you, said, you said dumplings and fritas, but what if we do a fucking frita dumpling? Oh, shit. Game changer. Ooh. This is the kind of innovation that comes out of a pandemic. Yeah, you see? You see? All right, Nick. All right, brother. Gotta go, man. Thanks, man. Take it easy, man. Take Bye. Next, Susana Jimenez, who is a food scientist and also is my sister, but more importantly, the reason that we can claim that Salina, Kansas is the home of our biggest listenership per capita. Susana works at Schwann's Salina facility, uh, to develop new products, especially frozen pizzas, for instance, the Red Baron brand that I'm sure everybody's seen in the freezer aisle. Uh, so without any further ado, here is the long-awaited Salina, Kansas portion of Pankong Podcast. I will let you explain what you do to start, because I'm sure that I would screw it up beyond telling people that you count pepperoni. Right, yeah, um, that's the... That's the term that, you know, simplified version, I count pepperoni, but no, uh, I am a food scientist. So we ensure quality tastes. And then on the more glamorous end of my job, I'm in charge of developing new products for uh, Schwann's, specifically Red Baron frozen pizza. Um, so anytime that you see a product on the shelf, there are lots of people behind it. 
Um, and I do a lot of the technical formula work, um, what's going to go from the benchtop and commercializing it to producing millions of pounds of pizza. Um, so that's the short version, but I eat a lot of pizza and I get paid to do it. So it's great. Nice. It's my, I'm the luckiest person. So what can you tell uh, people about just like about Schwann's more broadly than the aspect of it that you work on? Um, so Schwann's is a frozen indulgence company. So we proudly make anything that goes into kind of celebratory meals. We do frozen pizza. That's kind of the heart of the company right now. It started as a frozen ice cream company. We also do frozen egg rolls. Um, and so anything you can think of that is frozen and should be at a good party, we make it. Um, and we all, we do that from customers where you can find our products in the freezer at your grocery store, all the way through to restaurants, um, roller grill items. So things you might pick up at a gas station and it's on the roller grill, um, or behind the counter, we make those as well. Um, and we're branching out into some ingredient things. So we'll sell pizza dough for some of the restaurants that you go to as well. Um, but frozen indulgence is what we do. It started off as a direct to home delivery service. So a lot of people are familiar with the yellow Schwann's truck, um, and we still are partnered with them. They still sell a lot of our products. Um, but I specifically work in Red Baron, Freshetta, Tony's Pizza, things that we're very proud of are household names. Got it. And the that term frozen indulgence, is that something that that you use? Not you personally, but like the Schwann's users, or is that like in the industry a sort of like pretty I've universally heard it. used? I, the first time I heard it was in Schwann's, but I've used it in other networking settings and people understand immediately what you're saying. Um, you're in a very specific part of the grocery store. Got it. Okay. Um and I imagine like other things in that category would be like uh, uh, frozen ice like ice creams. creams. Uh -huh. Yeah, fried things, maybe uh, corn dogs, uh, novelty ice cream products, uh, frozen pizzas, things that wouldn't be maybe like light meals. We don't play in that sphere. Um, there are some things that are starting to creep in there like healthy, healthier for you or healthy halo items. Um, but we are mainly in the fried dipped feel good ice cream items. Got it. So uh, talk about how uh, your experience with COVID-19 has looked to this point. So basically like yeah. what, what happened and then how did that end up, you know, affecting your work uh, in, in a sort of tangible way? Yeah. So I think um, everyone's aware that COVID came on pretty quick. Uh, we were still, there was talk about it in January, how we would respond if this came and became an issue in the United States. Um, and I think the, the main piece of our company that was affected is we provide a lot of frozen school pizzas. So a lot of schools will order from us, both pizzas, egg rolls, that sort of thing will, and all of that inventory and all of that product just came to a screeching halt. There's no one going to school. Um, and then it started to leak into when you have lockdowns, we no longer sell roller grill items, things like um, pizzas at your convenience store, that sort of thing. Restaurants were also heavily affected. We know that. So we played a lot in the fast casual sort of restaurant game where you might get um, 
an egg roll next to your salad or frozen items like that with your meal. Um, and all of that business has just kind of stopped completely. Um, and we had to respond. My work was how do we take the ingredients that are no longer used there, put them to good use? How do we get pizzas in a format that can get to school kids that are no longer in school? So, you know, you would sell that for a cafeteria in big bulk items. How do we get kids at school or at home now individual items? So a lot of little product development items there. Um, and then just the volume. We've seen a crazy spike in frozen pizza sales in the grocery store. So finding ways to keep our production at rates that we can keep up with um, has been a big part of our response. And then obviously changes in protocol in how we work, things the company's been really proactive in how they set up workstations, how we change our methods so that we're kind of contained and keeping our plants safe, keeping the food safe and keeping our employees safe. So there's been a lot of quick responses. We've had, I've had weekly meetings, leadership has a daily meeting, so it changes every day. So can you get uh, into some of the specifics of how those like safety related protocols have changed? Sure. Um, so we are one of the few companies that still does direct to consumer, um, how would I put it? It's called DSD and it's, it's direct to store deliveries. And that means that we're in control of our supply chain from when we make the product up and through when it gets to the freezer shelf. Um, so things like we can dictate that the people delivering our food now wear masks, now wear gloves. Um, now their routes are very limited. So putting in protocols for, you know, before FedEx was doing new drop off and like changing the signatures, we were doing that as well. Um, then in the plant itself, we know that the, the production facility is you're working in close quarters and you're moving from spot to spot. Um, so things like putting up plastic barriers to make sure that social distancing was being practiced while we're producing food and then, uh, making sure that any, if, you know, having a game plan for when there is a positive case in our facilities. Um, so, I mean, I don't know the planning that went into that beforehand, but seeing the results of that is absolutely insane. They are now regularly just like smoke bombing with disinfectant and bactericides. So um, really interesting, really uh, resource intensive, but I think well worth making sure that the company and the people eating our food are safe. Yeah. Your work deals with food that's very different in kind also, not just in like scale and distribution and all that, but um, one thing that, that I'm curious about and that I know, you know, you and I talked about on a, like a call that we didn't record a few days ago. Uh, talk about how you see uh, the market for frozen foods changing uh, and how much is even possible, right? In terms of like whether frozen foods are, uh, how capable is a frozen food company of meeting the demand of people who can no longer access, at least to the same degree or with the same frequency, restaurant, let's call it restaurant quality pizzas, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to note that our company recognizes that restaurants are filling and pro- 
providing an important space both for the consumer that is not going to get that experience in the frozen aisle and for us in that that's a really important research segment for us because they can adopt niche flavors, they can experiment with flavors in ways that our volumes just cannot. We we can't try, you know, we can't be the first ones to try a harissa paste because we need to make millions of pounds of pizza. And if that's not accepted by a wide audience, it's a problem for us, the way that our inventory works and the way that our production works. So it's really important to us that restaurants thrive and that we have a space that we can read into the consumer and see what do they want to be giving their families on kind of a weekly basis versus what is a, uh, a splurge or a, you know, new experience and, and something that's filled only in a restaurant. Um, and two, we're, we're serving a different eating occasion. So, you know, our, our customers are usually feeding a family with uh, small kids. They're feeding families on a budget. They're, they're trying to do a different job than what you're doing when you're having a night out or, you know, eating lunch in the office or uh, any of those other jobs. So we know our consumer is trying to feed a family on a budget easy and quickly um, and be able to stock up their freezer. So they want something that uh, Monday night rolls around, kids are coming back from soccer, ballet, et cetera. And I need something quick. I need something now. And I need something that everyone's going to like versus a restaurant. You might be going for a whole different experience, a something new, uh, something where you're putting your trust in the chef um, versus we're trying to meet a, a completely different need. Um, so I don't see Frozen ever really getting to the caliber that a restaurant would or um, meeting the same needs. We do try to adopt certain things that we say, hey, there's there's a hunger for this. People are doing this often enough in enough restaurants um, and not even, you know, not the Ariettes of the world, but the fast casual is after where we would adopt it. Um, you know, enough. there's enough of a, a demand for this and this is where we can step in and fill that void. Um, so completely different occasion, customer, and experience. So you mentioned, you know, an ingredient like harissa paste. Um, in the case of the products that you work with, but but maybe even like other things that you see in the market, because I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine that to some degree, you know, people who work at Schwann's are also kind of aware of what's going on at competitors. Um, can you give an example of like a product that went through that process of like being accepted in the marketplace where, you know, a year, one year, it would have been unthinkable to produce that thing, you know, at a large scale. And then the next yeah. year you had something like a harissa uh, paste or whatever on the market. Yeah. So I actually went to, it was pretty interesting. Um, I went to a talk where um, the president of product development at KFC was speaking Um or rather Red Lobster, sorry, she was from Red Lobster. And she said, um, she gave a great example of this adoption curve is what we say. Um, and you'll see trends pop up. I mean, we all see trends come up and die. What's on Instagram right now, what's super hot. And at the time that she was in product development, uh, people were going crazy for chicken and waffles. And you would see chicken and waffles on, it started in like, you know, it was taken and elevated at Southern restaurants and kind of big names were putting it on their menus. 
And she saw this start and she said, this is where we need to adopt it now. Um, and we need it in Red Lobster in about eight months. So that's the, it starts off slow and people start talking chicken and waffle. People start Instagramming about it. People just can't get enough of it. And then it's at fast casual and she wants to adopt it there versus afterwards, a few months later, KFC had chicken and waffle products. And then after that, you had, who knows, chicken and waffle egos. So we are on that curve of people starting to like things and trust a very capable chef to experiment it with it. Um, we're on the other end of the curve where people trust us to give a consistent product that they can give their whole family and it's already mainstream. They are familiar with this flavor. They know they've tried it a few different ways and now they feel comfortable that like, yes, I'm gonna like it. I can keep this in my freezer for any day of the week. Um, so we're on the opposite end of that, um, where people are adopting it early, where mainstream adoption. Great. Um, how do you see the sort of, I mean, obviously right now, and I think this is probably the case, even for a company the size of Schwann's, right? Everybody's kind of like in survival mode. Like, how do we just like adapt right now for the next five minutes of whatever this uncertainty is? But how do you see like the more medium and long term? What's the what is a company like Schwann's preparing for uh, on that timeline? Yeah, um, I we had a meeting today where they were talking about priorities, and they talk about it's it's an interesting way to think about frozen indulgent food. But they talked about this responsibility to feed America, right? Everybody's talked about how the grocery store shelves are emptied out. And we have a unique product that can have a shelf life that will allow for a buffer in getting fresher foods, in getting foods longer distances, that sort of thing. So our leadership is talking about making sure we can keep up with these volumes should this continue, should there be issues with supply on other levels for a customer, a client, or for um, people at home. I think it's also changing the way we think about our packaging. How can we make more adaptable packaging that can go not just from a roller grill, but if a convenience store decides to continue social distancing and have things behind the counter, how can we make it really easy for them? How can we service this new want and need? Um, and then in the, I guess, medium term, it's not short or long, we need to keep up with volumes because we've had just this, like I said, this incredible spike. And we want to make sure that, you know, the mom who has uh, kids staying at home from school and she's playing teacher, mom, chef has a few options and can always get some at the grocery store that are easy, quick, um, and reliable as she knows what they're going to like. Um, so the volumes right now are, are, deliverable to the customer is keep up with their demand and then safety wise what can we put in place long term in our facilities to keep us and the customer safe and how do we adapt and create products that will adapt to what this new world that we don't understand yet right so the last time that we spoke we got into a little bit of like what the limitations are right the, the things that a company like yours can't do that a company like let's say um uh genuine <coughs> the Mi michael's um michael schwartz's uh restaurant group that has harry's pizza for example um 
are able to do, right? In terms of like the complexity and all that. I'm an idiot. Yeah. I don't know anything about the science of what makes, you know, one pizza taste one way and another one the other way beyond just like the simplest, like, oh, this one's got better stuff. Uh, but talk a bit about that for the people who, I mean, everybody's aware frozen pizza exists, but I think it's something that most people haven't ever given a whole lot of thought to. Uh, yeah. 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 So we, we definitely research and dive deep into what chefs, especially in pizza are doing. Um, I know I was able to meet, um, Ann Kim. She's from Pizzeria Lola in Minneapolis and she is on our chefs collective. So these are chefs that we bring in to understand what customers are doing at their level, what techniques they're using that makes unique products. And she, for example, has a dough that is, um, retarded or proofed for over 24 hours. You're not supposed to say that anymore. Well, (laughs) um, so um, it's proofed for, I I believe, a whole day for 24 hours. And that makes a lot of complex flavors, a lot of different sugars developing. Um, Yeast is just allowed to have like a party and have it results in this super light, crispy, toasted, nutty, weedy, sweet crust that isn't super feasible for something that needs to get out millions and millions of pounds. Um, That's just not something we are ready to do now. It's not on our top priority list because we know she does it better than we could. Um, But we know from that consumers have been really drawn to those multi flavors, to those complex wheat toasted flavors. We can figure out other ways to get that in there and say, our product has something different than other freezer competition pizzas, but we don't want you to stop going to Ann Kim's restaurant because she does something completely out of this world. Yeah. What else can you tell me about what would you say was the chef's collective? Yes, we have a chef's collective and we work closely with, I think it's about a, I don't know, eight to a dozen chefs that um, mostly in the Minneapolis area, but they um, they come in and they give us insights on trends, what their clients are seeing, what's kind of coming and jumping off the menu pages for their consumers. Um, they give us feedback on products we're making. Um, and they also work with our clients. So things like the school pizzas, they'll give food service operators ways that they can customize their pizzas. So if you put fresh veggies and shaved salads on pizza, kids are going to eat more veggies and they, they find ways to play around with more inventive flavors and things that food service operators can do with less risk. So if they buy tons of Asian inspired pizzas and their kids don't like it, that's a big waste for them versus if they have one day where they take a cheese pizza and put on kimchi, that's a way to figure out if a school might be open to that. Um, and we like to have the chefs collected there to translate those flavors, those ideas best to our clients and to us, our product developers. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of the chefs, cause I, I think now, right. I think that there are going to be a lot of chefs all over the place looking for ways to sort of, um, not only bring in other revenue, but you know, you're, it's no longer be going to be as feasible at least in like the short term, maybe even the medium right. term, mm-hmm. to build a reputation just on 
brick and mortar restaurant, right? Because you're not going to have as many people having, you know, uh, access to that whole experience that you're curating. So, uh, I don't even know whether these are discussions that you're a part of, but do you see, uh, there being a use for like an expanded role or an expanded version of a program like that, whether at your company or, or any other? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard, um, and I really encourage chefs in general to look out for these programs, not just with um, big name companies, but I know friends that are involved in like startup companies where they get mentorship from chefs and it might not be that they're mentoring the opening of a restaurant, but they're mentoring somebody who has a background in marketing and they want to start a product. Um, and those people need a lot of guidance in terms of flavors, in terms of what people like, um, how much you can push the boundaries with a wide audience and chefs are an invaluable resource when it comes to that. They understand how to build a menu. They understand how to tell a story to customers and get them on board with new and exciting flavors. Um, so I really encourage, I know that we always look for that sort of resource. We value that sort of resource and not just large companies, but, uh, startups, nonprofits, um, there's uh, incubating of small businesses and stuff. That is a really great place for chefs to share their talents um, and make some revenue, but things that people are, are really value because that's a lot of risk that a chef has taken um, when building a new restaurant, a new idea, a new menu, even a new dish. Um, so we're not in a position to take those sorts of risks, but learning from that experience is something we, we super duper want on our team. Okay. Um, so just kind of hard shift to, to wrap this thing up. Uh, talk a bit about what you're cooking now that you're not counting pepperoni all the time. Uh, oh, so well, <laughs> a lot of, uh, I mean, I used to talk that, you know, I go to work and I get on the bench top and take out my scale and do stuff and I come home and do the same thing. So I've been baking, I've been learning about different breads, and I'm hoping that we can apply this to different products at work. Um, I've also been doing things that take a lot longer that just kind of have to sit. So like yesterday, we made candied orange peels because we had oranges that were getting used in cocktails and baked goods and things. And we saved all the peels, we're able to candy that and make simple syrup. So trying to figure out that whole like waste not want not explore that a little bit um and long developed flavors like doughs so i think you've seen on my instagram i've had like a new bread every day <laughs> yeah is your, is your instagram public by the way or is it a private it's, i think it's public right um, it's public yeah yeah so your mommy made me do it you want to yeah. explain that for people uh i wasn't on instagram for a really long time much to our mother's chagrin um and she claimed that because I couldn't like her photos, I did not love her enough. So I wanted to show my love to her and also tell her that she was the, she's at fault for this. So right, mommy made me do it. Mommy made me do it on Instagram. Um, and then um, finally, so that's what you've been cooking. Uh, back when things were normal, what were you typically eating in Salina, Kansas? I think a lot of people hear all this talk about Salina, Kansas on this podcast. Yeah. And they have no idea uh, what's going on over there. Salina, Kansas is, it's definitely a culture shock for Miami. Um, I haven't really lived at home in a long time and I've 
missed the food for what, eight years now? I haven't really lived there. Um, but Salina has an interesting cuisine. They are, they are the proudest meat and potatoes I've ever met. Um, you know, we have great steak and we have lots of wheat. So people know how to use it in all sorts of forms. Um, barbecue is a way of life. I think I used to think that a barbecue was like, hey, we're gonna have a barbecue, we're gonna have a party. People here will just barbecue their dinner on their front porch daily. It is, you know, wintertime, people will be making brisket all day. Um, so lots of barbecues, lots of red meat, lots of wheat was what we have. Lots of wheat. <laughs> barbecue with a side of wheat. Yeah, uh, my my boss jokes that our the Midwest culture is is a hot tater tot casserole, and it's it's pretty good. I mean, for it was it's an exotic cuisine for me, but. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I've I've learned what funeral potatoes are. Funeral potatoes. Yeah, I I question that, and apparently it's it's kind of like a potatoes of rattan, like cheesy potatoes. But apparently, enough times people have brought it as a gift during a funeral that if you tell, I I thought it was like just a family thing with her, but no, you tell people like, oh, do you have a funeral potatoes recipe? And they do. I I don't. I I didn't know that was a thing, but. Yes, meat, potatoes, wheat, Interesting. and Swedish things. There's a big Swedish population here. Oh, what kinds so, of like uh, like uh, what kind of Swedish things are people eating? Swedish like pancakes. Uh, lot, lots of people claim that they make the best Swedish pancakes, um, meatballs. So lots of creamy meatballs, lots of dill and things. Um, yeah, we are the next town over. Lindsberg is Little Sweden, so. If you're ever driving through Middle America, you can stop by Salina and then Little Sweden and have a whole world day experience. Look at that. In the finished version of this podcast, I'm going to cut in some audio of the Swedish chef. Very appropriate place to put that in. English beer, the Swedish (laughs) Okay. So is, is there anything that we haven't talked about? that you would want to get into? I mean, I'm sure that at some other point in the future we can, you know, it would be interesting to get you and Mike on that food science conversation because I don't have very much to contribute to that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but is there anything we haven't talked about, especially on like the COVID-19 stuff and how things have changed in in that industry that that we have? Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to share that our company is really hoping that as much as the restaurant owners, I'm, I'm sure, Mike would argue that they're wanting this more, but this gets over with safely because we want our restaurants back. Um, We want to support those restaurant owners as much as possible. Um, And consumers, we're trying to get pizza out to you as quick as possible. So, Cool. That's it. Finally, my friend, longtime friend, Enrique Hernandez. Uh, Fun fact, everyone calls him Red because he once read a book. Red is the operations manager at Tire Group International, a Miami-based tire distributor. We talked about how his industry has responded to the coronavirus, how the pandemic is affecting industry trends, and what he expects to happen in terms of consumer behavior in the aftermath of COVID-19. Even if you're all about food content uh, or food industry content, 
This is worth listening to. Tires, after all, are an inescapable cost built into the food supply chain, whether we're talking about tractor tires or wholesale truck tires or uh, delivery to the end consumer on regular old, you know, car tires. Uh, So this is something that I think, uh, you know, hopefully everyone will find some value in, even though there's not a whole lot of food talk involved. Let's start with, uh, just like on the personal side, what has this been like for you personally? You're a, you're a newlywed. Uh, yes. So this is like probably more, more time in isolation with uh, Bia, your new wife, than you expected you were in for. How's that going? Oh, uh, yeah, it's going well. Actually, it's, we're having a lot of like conversations. Uh, we're, we're doing everything that we should be doing over the span of six months. We've done it in the last three weeks, you know, like we were, uh, we're actually looking at, we were looking at houses and apartments. And then now with this, it's created a lot of questions. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, we're spending a lot of time together. Um, luckily we're newlyweds. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's worse. I talked to my dad. He's been married 35 years and he's like, Oh, this is miserable. <laughs> you know, like, so I don't know what's worse. It's, you know, something, you know, a new wife or a, a long term, you know, a long time wife. So I don't, yeah. I don't know what's worse for him. She, you know, she I, also, I, she, she, like, she clearly doesn't know you that well because she thinks you shaved for this. Well, yeah. So it's funny <laughs> because she's been, she's been complaining about my beard. So I had a beard. I mean, I had a, a beard that I let grow for since the wedding. So we got married on February 22nd. Uh, so I haven't shaved for you. Not shaving in that long is like, a, I mean, you got, you grow hair way faster. You're way more hairy than I am. Nick, I haven't but. shaved since, uh, since February 22nd of like 2011. No, 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 no way. That's, that does not, that's like for you right there. That's like two days. No, no, no. I, I've trimmed it, but I haven't like blade to skin. Oh, no, no. Okay. Yeah, no, I had like a small beard, it, like a very trim beard on my wedding. I haven't shaved it since. And it was like down to, I guess like the, you know, you, I would cover most of my neck, uh, or some of my neck there. And Bia was, every time she kissed me, she just kind of like, Ugh. and then it sm- and she goes, it smells like tire rubber. Your beard smells like tire rubber. And I'm like, nice. you know, so um so i shaved not just for for her but for the podcast i wanted to i didn't want to get on the podcast and you guys to see all my white hairs and be like man he's really struggling during this pan so i was like let me clean shave it and now i look like a lot fresher a little more spruced up there you go Uh, so that's a good the tire rubber smell is a good transition so uh let's um give us like the Maybe not elevator. It can go longer than elevator, but like the short version of like overview of Tire Group. Uh, what is the company? What does it do? And what doesn't it do? Because people might make some assumptions when they hear like tire company or tire distributor. Like what is the scope of what this company does? So Tire Group is a uh, business to business tire wholesaler and distributor. Uh, we sell uh, tires to every type of company from major fleets to other distributors and wholesalers to the mom and pop shops located within the areas where we have warehousing. Um, High level tire group uh, was, was found by two brothers. Well, it was found by uh, a a gentleman from Miami, a Columbus grad, uh, Tony Gonzalez, and then has been run by his, his family. Basically Uh, his brother is now the president of the company. He's the CEO. His brother, is a famous Miami figure, Joaquin Gonzalez. Um, Who famously said to dominate. 
to dominate. Right, right. Which you had Ed Reed on the on the podcast. I would have right. loved to get them together. So, but that's that's for another day. Um, well, Ed Reed did. Yeah. He mentioned Joaquin in that interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, and, and Joaquin, Joaquin, just for people who don't know, he's like he's a brilliant. I mean, his brother is a, a, an amazing entrepreneur, and Joaquin himself is just a brilliant businessman. You know, he turned. There's a story he turned on Harvard and the whole deal. So. But back to Tire Group. Tire Group is a, you know, it's a business to business uh, wholesale distributor. We have a, our main, you know, we're headquartered in Miami. We have a, like a 200,000 square foot facility full of tires. And, um, and then we also do a lot of uh, uh, tire orders and container loads to, uh, you know, different players around the world. Like we don't just sell in the U.S. We sell globally to everybody and uh as long as you have you have a tire business or have a certain level of volume we we supply you tires so um right now if we fall under um those those essential businesses uh, especially locally um our our container business is uh has taken a bit of a hit because a lot of people aren't you know fronting that kind of cash right now everybody's kind of taking a wait and see approach but locally we're we're supplying tires to the guys that um, uh, manage the fleets, that take care of the fleets and all those delivery trucks. You know, when you guys, you drive around the empty roads, what you see is mostly like either 18 wheeler, the four, you know, the big 40 foot high cube containers uh, or 53 trailers, or uh, you'll see a lot of those vans. So we supply those kind of tires. Um, we do not only those tires, we do everything that's agricultural, industrial. I mean, we, we sell every tire there is, everything except aviation is what we what we're known for. So yeah, we have a pretty good presence in the in the industry. Um, yep. But yeah, that's that. So um, talk a bit about uh, part of the reason that that I wanted to talk to you for for this podcast is not just that we're talking to people from like a variety of industries, right? So now, like in the non food realm of these coronavirus conversations. You're yeah. joining the ranks of of a magician and a, and a leadership coach. Hold so, on, and a Hall of Fame football player. But we haven't talked coronavirus with him. That's what I'm saying. Like in, the, in this oh, coronavirus I conversation. Um, I got. It. So, uh, oh, so anyway, my point is uh, that is for that is just to bring in some different perspective, but also because in your case, there is you know a lot of overlap, uh, maybe more than meets the eye, because. The whole food supply chain, this is one of the built-in costs of getting, of moving food around, of farming, of all of that. So mm-hmm. talk a bit about the, not, not even just that, but also even consumer tires, because all this delivery that's happening now is there. The buying power of your customers, if you run a restaurant, you know, cars are one of the big budget items in anybody's, uh, in anybody's life, and replacing your tires is never cheap. So right. talk a bit mm-hmm. about, like the, especially on the commercial side with farming and, and the parts that relate to the supply chain. Talk a bit about this, the trends that you see there, how you anticipate, uh, how, how you've seen people change their habits and how you guys expect uh, things to change. Like what, what is it that you're yeah. sort of like adjusting for? Yeah, so obviously if you go out on the roads, um, the everyday person going to work, there, there are less tires being, uh, you know, there's just less tire use. So overall, you know, sales, sales do, it took a dip, you know, overall as a, as a, as a population or as as a society, we're just driving less, but um, we are depending more on deliveries and they are the output that these trucks are putting out. I mean, they are, 
they are on the road constantly. I mean, what, you know, normally you would go out to eat some, you would deliver some, you know, you had your Amazon was, you know, was, was always busy. Your, your Publix was always busy, but Instacart I'm sure has blown up and, and all these, you know, Uber drivers and Uber eats, every Uber driver that was driving people is now driving food. You know, they had to, you, you have those workers displaced and then you have people that were in the food industry who are like, okay, I, I'm not getting any checks. So they're, they're also doing the Uber eats thing. So yeah, you have less traffic. Well, and not just that, but like, if you take the example uh, and, and I'm only, I'm partly bringing this up because I know that our, our usual host, Mike, has, I know he's, he's got his jihad against Uber eats. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but even for a company like his, right? Like he recently, uh, uh, Ariad Hospitality just recently started doing their own delivery. Their own delivery. And those that, that's wear on those tires too. So Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and even these the, you know, the restaurants that are doing that do have offer their own deliveries are delivering more. So granted, like there is some movement of tires. It's it's not the overall population. But what, what I've noticed is so we we you know we we carry like fifteen hundred different SKUs. I mean we probably have more than five to 600 solid moving sizes uh, of tires. And, uh, you know, all these tires fall into the passenger light truck and truck range. Um, and what I've noticed is that, um, I was actually just looking at the information is that we've had a lot, a drop in a lot of the everyday tire sales, like the everyday passenger tire, but there's like six or seven sizes which belong to these vans and these trucks that kind of stayed steady and they're, they're kind of sustaining us as a, as a business right now. So, you know, although overall revenue is down there, there is st still some movement on these like specific sizes. And so my, my guess is that these, that are the shops, the local shops, and those are the, really the ones right now that um, are ordering the most tires. The reason for that is a lot of these shops, they don't carry a lot of inventory. So they're not necessarily fronting cash. What they're doing is they know, you know, they don't they don't keep a lot of stock. So they know that whatever they're buying from us, it's actually something that's going to get put on the vehicle that day and they're going to collect on it that day. Yeah. So so in that sense, we, we are getting uh, a lot of business from those. And and what I see in the future, I mean, I, I I see. So a tire for a lot of people is a necessary evil. And we you know, we in the tire industry and, and just like in the food industry, like I'm sure there's people that say a meal's a meal. It doesn't matter. Like, no, you know, people that are really into food love certain chefs, learn certain styles of cooking. They appreciate certain things. And same thing in, in any um, industry, like in the tire industry, you know, everybody knows your, your major brands that you see all the commercials for, but um, there's a whole uh, gamut of, uh, of private label brands or, you know, smaller brands that aren't as well known that offer that do, you know, have the same output that, that have the same build. I mean, we we currently promote um, a small private label uh, and and one that that is one of our own that we um, that we're actually pushing a lot is Cosmo tires and it performs just as good as any major brand. Uh, it's it's a lot less expensive because of you know because of where we source it from and and where we and and how you know it's it's ours. So we have less overhead than many of these major players. Um, and in, in that sense, I feel like the consumer will look for the better deal moving forward. I, I feel as a society, we're going to become more, uh, more focused on saving. It, you know, there was this whole movement after the Great Depression of people that saved more, that, that would kind of 
put away more money. You, you know, uh, Abuelita, she keeps that. She always has that drawer full of money. Like I, I told, uh, we were once, I have a funny story about my grandma. Sorry, going off topic here, but my, uh, my grandmother, uh, you know, one day she was, I don't know why she was talking such a morbid thing. But she was talking about the inherit, like, oh, well, well, you know, we have a lot of cousins. And stuff, so who's going to get what? And, and so I think one of my uncles uh, in a in a funny way said, no, I want that shelf because I think you got a money printer in that shelf because she always goes to the same little vitrinita to get her her dollars or whatever to give it out, you know, yeah. to give cash or, I mean, hito, tu gasolina? And she'll come and give you like a $20 bill. Uh, so so that kind of thing. So my, I feel like that generation, they lived through a, a time where saving was essential, where getting the best deal was essential. I don't know if you've ever tried negotiating with somebody over the age of 70. Uh-huh. You're in, you know, so I, I do feel overall in everything that we buy, we're going to become more educated. And so that does help people like tire, like, you know, companies like tire group, because we do, yeah, we sell the major brands too, but we really try to push some of the, the, uh, you know, the, the less popular brands or the, or the brands that are developed by us or engineered by us. Um, and, and it's always hard to get to the market when everybody just feels comfortable buying their, you know, their basic brands or the, or the brands that they're, that they know have, they've depended on for years. And, um, yeah, so I, I do feel that the trend will be that people will get, become more educated as to what they're buying. And they will, they'll talk more with the shops as to what the, where the good deals are. And hopefully the shops, we'll be able to educate them and, and help them save money and get great quality product for yeah. sure. So you for guys, sure. you guys also have parts of your business that operate in Latin America. Um, oh talk, yeah. yeah. We, talk about what you're, have, what you're seeing there with, with all of this. Um, I mean, Latin America for a long time was a market that was slowing for us for many reasons. The U S dollar was really strong. So many companies were, um, like kind of hesitant in investing in buying, you know, product in U.S. dollars. So they were buying a lot directly from China. And then when we went into a trade war with China, which, you know, but just as an FYI, uh, the deals with China have always been on and off. We, this goes back 15 years. I mean, we've always put uh, countervailing and anti-dumping duties on and off based on like things like U.S. steelworker strike or trying to promote manufacturing within the country. Um, that has always been a, that has always been a, like a battle. So every time we put a new trade barrier, uh, on Chinese product, China, their biggest buyer is the U S. So every time there was a, a you know, some form of obstacle on, in, in that sense, they would, uh, flood Latin American markets. And so what happens when you flood product into a market, the price of the product goes down. And when the price of the product goes down, it's, it's very difficult to compete. Um, so what I've seen is the, the LATAM market now, I mean, right now it's, 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 I mean, pretty much at a standstill. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of ports are, are operating on lean, you know, on lean personnel. Um, a lot of companies are, you know, a little bit more, um, a little uh, holding, holding their cash a lot more tightly. Um, terms, just, you know, credit terms in Latin America are totally different than credit terms here. Uh, many companies here. You know, you work on 30 days um, in Latin America, 60 day terms. I mean, having a, a you know, 60 day terms is like a very normal thing and actually very healthy. So imagine we're, you know, here in the U.S., we're going to start feeling people kind of stretch themselves out and hold payments and, and hold, you know, kind of hold cash. Imagine in Latin America. So 
from as a business from a strategic position it's difficult to to push inventory out into latin american markets now um, even before it was a little difficult uh or it was it was very difficult it was very challenging our our you know our international sales team would always say that the biggest challenge was was getting guys to 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 buy into paying in dollars uh, because of many of the exchange rates and a lot of these countries their their currency was devalued you know um you know we had a presence in we, we, we have presence everywhere. Um, like for example, Colombia was one that was very specific. Colombia, the, when we were, uh, I mean, within a matter of two, with a matter of a year or two, the, the peso, like it, it went from almost like a one and a half to one to three to one ratio with the U S dollar. So yeah. things like that were already a, kind of prevalent before this, um, I mean, now who knows what this would cause? I mean, the longer this goes, I, I'm guessing the U.S. dollar starts to devalue a bit. Where I think these guys are printing a ton of money. Maybe, maybe the market resets and your international market is it becomes a lot. Uh, it becomes a, just a different market. So, I mean, we we as a company are, we're very flexible. We we have an international team, we have a national team, we have a local team. Um, so we have different sources and different streams of business uh, from on tire group side. So, I mean, in that sense, I do see, I, I do foresee changes. I don't know what they are yet because it, it all depends on how long this goes. I mean, if they start extending May 15th, May 30th, now you're talking about two months of, of people, of, of not even people, companies operating cash flows, getting tighter. I mean, like I know after, you know, I've listened to a few of you, uh, so, to all of your podcasts and I've, and I've, um, you know, I hear, I hear Mike talk about, uh, the cash flow of restaurants, like a healthy cash flow for restaurants is two to three weeks of cash flow. So these guys, and they were the first to be shut down. Right. So I can't imagine what they're going to going through uh, in terms of like, the longer this goes, I mean, they're, they're just, they have everybody's on hold. Yeah. So at least in our industry, you know, it, it's a different, it's a different industry. We're in different positions. I can't imagine uh, dealing with what these restaurant owners are going through, especially guys like Mike that that have a team first, family first mentality with with all of their personnel. Um, you know, Tire Group's the same way. I mean, we have we have a hundred uh, team members here at Tire Group. Um, uh, we got you know forty five warehouse guys. We're we're actually we were before the coronavirus. We were expanding. Uh, we had added a warehouse in Tampa. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were looking, we're, you know, we're still poising to grow, but it's just it's slowed down a bit. Right. And even even if we wanted to to expedite the growth, other companies have slowed down. So like, I mean, you know, yesterday I was in I was uh, at the at the Tampa office and I couldn't get my Wi-Fi up and running. And I'm waiting on like two routers from Cisco and they are backed up with uh, with orders because I'm guessing they're also working lean. So, yeah. So, yeah, everything's affected. Everything's affected. So one of the, um, you know, most of the people that we have on when we talk about their business are in food. Um, you're obviously not. One thing that I'm curious about is, you know, every business has had to suddenly concern itself with all these like hygiene questions and the distance and restaurants are kind of used to the idea of like, make sure you wash your hands, make sure you do this because you're handling food that people are going to put in their mouths. And, um, but for you, uh, and, and you're in operations. So I, I imagine that that ends up being part of the operation. That must've been like a whole new thing. Like, Oh, what do you mean now I have to like be worried about sneezing and how far, a mo oh. how far a moco can travel in the well, air? Like not only am I in operations, but I'm 
kind of I myself as a person am kind of reckless with my hygiene and my new wife will attest to that. <laughs> I, I can I am, attest I, to that. Uh, you can attest <laughs> to that. Right, right. So for me, personally, it was an, no, actually. Um, so there's a couple of things that play there. Tire Group is, um, you know, the, the CEO of Tire Group, Tony, he is a he's like all about attention to detail. So even before the coronavirus, we've always had um, two people on, you know, on, on staff that were in charge of making sure the facility was spotless. They there, you know, we have these two ladies now and and uh, we've always had uh, we've always had uh, them. They, they go around the facility and they make sure everything's spotless. They they are constantly making, you know, cleaning the facility, including the warehouse, the parking lot. Um, we even have some warehouse personnel that their job is to go around, and make sure everything's clean along the sides of the fences and all that. And um, the they even bring the the little co- the Cuban coffee around every you know you couple of times a day. Yeah, yeah, it's so before this was going on, we actually, if you were to walk into our office, it does not look like a tire company. I mean, it looks like we do I don't know private equity or something. Like it does not look like we're handling tires. And our warehouse managers, uh, he's he's you know he tries to make sure to keep a clean warehouse. Um, in addition to that, you know, when this all hit, it was kind of like, okay, you know, it's, it's not so much, how do we keep the place clean? We do a pretty good job. How do we avoid people from, you know, we have a part of our business where the local shops, there are people that they send, you have, we have two forms of business. We can deliver to the shop or they can come and pick up the tires. And when they come and pick up the tires, sometimes they come and give checks. Sometimes they go upstairs, they talk to their rep. So we had, you know, when we sat and talked, uh, our our COO, um, uh, our, you know, I work I, I work directly with our, our COO Orlando, and he's he's somebody that has a, a lot of experience in in dealing with uh, procedural changes, supply chain, um, logistics, and so of course the concern there is, okay, you know, what what do we do now? People can't come. So how how are we going to handle this? Like, you can't have uh, you can't have a whole, you know, warehouse of this many people, and and then in addition, let be letting customers in and come and interact with everybody. And so it was all about, you know, how do we limit the the contact between personnel and people coming in from the outside? Um, so the first thing we did, um, we got everybody masks, we got everybody gloves. I mean, we were one of the first companies to order masks and gloves. Yeah, um, we bought hand sanitizer for the facility. We got the Clorox, we made the mixes. Uh, the ladies uh, that normally, um, the two ladies that maintain our facility on a regular basis um, started going around, uh, all doors are left open uh, so people don't have to put the hands on the knob. They, every hour they're they're kind of wiping down the uh, the doorknobs. I mean, my door's closed right now, but it's mostly just to make sure that Cause there's, you know, people walking by sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they, um, they wipe down the, the knobs with, with, um, with sanitizer, with alcohol and make sure that everything's clean. In addition to that, we had to talk to our local customers that normally come in and tell them, Hey, when you come in to pick up tires, you have to go to directly to the cashier window, maintain a distance from the window. We have, you know, a glass there that's always being clean. They, they can pay their bill, whatever, you know, everything done with gloves, everything done very carefully. And then they, they go and proceed to the warehouse. So from that end, it was, okay, let's meet. And in addition to that, a lot of the shops don't want to send people to other facilities. They, they also want to keep a distance. So everybody's doing their part in that sense. Um, so we, we had the clean part. Then the next question, which uh, knock on wood, um, 
was what if somebody gets infected here? What's the plan? Um, you know, and, and when, whenever you're the first to have something happen to you, you're always like the one that has to go through all the growing pains. Luckily, we weren't. Uh, Amazon had uh, had somebody in a facility up in New Jersey get, get ill. Publix had somebody, I think, uh, not too long ago get ill. And so there were a list of um, there were there was like a I think if you look at I don't know if it's MiamiDate.gov or the World Health Organization, one of these um, that had a, a list of criteria in case your facility business facility got infected. And so we we revised that and we put that, you know, we looked at that in, in regards to our facility. And so we came up with a plan in case. Uh, somebody uh, were to get infected here, we would, you know, shut down for 24 hours, uh, ensure a, a deep cleaning of the facility, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, just to kind of, con you know, make sure that we still have some form of, you know, some form of continuity in, in how we operate, but also be like responsible um, in, you know, and making sure that we're not, you know, we're part of the solution and not part of the problem. Yeah. So. So yeah, I mean, we've always been clean, I mean, and that that comes from the the owners. I mean, the owners of this company are, they are. I mean, if you go to their house, there's always spotless. I always joke with them because they're I'm the opposite, you know. Actually, every time they walk in my office, they they like this board in the back. They're always straightening it out. Because are you, you know, like tipping it over okay. or something? What are you doing? No, no, you know, just like over time, things just kind of like they get that lean, you know, they get a little lean. And so, no, my, I mean, my Orlando, my COO comes in all the time and he's like always readjusting my friend. So I, what I'm getting at is basically everybody's very clean here. And, yeah. and, oh, and the other thing we did, we have, just to give you an idea, we have like 60 people that work. No, what am I saying? 45, 50 people that work in the office. Every role that is able to work remotely was sent home hey you work remotely yeah. we made we made sure they had all the equipment i mean we as a tire company you think of tire it's like very low tech but um as a company uh, you know i and this is where i specialize in it is uh, i've always been given the green light to uh, to do and invest in technology um to prepare or create better process or you know uh, streamline certain certain things you know whether whether it was process related or whether it was security related, uh, equipment related. So we already kind of had a very good infrastructure to, to at least give everybody the opportunity to work from home. Mm -hmm. I think the big, the worst thing we did was when, when this first, when the news first hit, we were scrambling because we had probably about 15 users that didn't have laptops at home, you know, because they never worked remotely. They yeah, come yeah. in they didn't work. However, they had the capability to work remotely. And I was like, do you have a home computer? They're like, no, no, it, you know, I have a home computer, but it's not very good. And it just becomes a security risk. So I was actually scrambling for hardware for about two weeks. We were like, where do we get laptops? I mean, normally we order directly from Dell and from our from our IT providers. But I had to go to like Office Depot and pick yeah. up regular, you know, laptops. So we were scrambling that first week. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had all the infrastructure ready to for everybody to work. So right now, what we have in the office is a skeleton crew, uh, just a couple guys in management, uh, a couple of the guys in admin, uh, sales reps and CSRs. Uh, you know, we we just have a few people on site, um, just to ensure you know things that happen throughout the day, whether you know it's like over, you know just basic like uh, operating issues like right actually one of our ac units 
had an issue. So like, you know, things right, like right, that right. You know, on site. Um, but yeah, we have a, a completely, uh, we have maybe 70% of our office not here. Um, and then we have the warehouse crew working. Um, the warehouse team, they're, um, you know, they, we've, as a company, we have, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're very family oriented and um, we, we are actually one of the few companies that have a very solid team. You know, in many, in many businesses, warehouse tends to have a lot of turnover, you know, naturally because people leave and they come back and it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those positions that tends to have um, a lot of in and out. I mean, here at Tire, we, we have a lot of guys that have been here a long time mm -hmm. and they have a vested interest in, in, you know, in the success of the company as a whole. And, and we have a personal relationship with all our guys and, and, and our whole team. I mean, everybody, everybody in this, in this company is, is all about, it, it's all people first. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we've given them the opportunity. Hey guys, you, you do what you feel comfortable doing and everybody's happy to be, you know, uh, at work. Everybody really is. So, you know, we, you know, I go down and I talk to the guys all the time and, you know, they're wearing their masks they're doing, you know, they're wearing their gloves. Um, but yeah, we, we've, we've, we, as a, as a whole have done everything we can to manage it as it presents itself, because this is all new to everybody. Right. Um, but I, I think that in addition to that, you know, being, you know, being working, you know, with, with all the man, like it's, it's, it's easy to make a decision. It's hard to execute and it's easier to execute when the people that are you're executing uh, on behalf of um, have a vested interest and, and believe in the, in your intentions, in your intentions as a company. Mm -hmm. And that made it a lot easier when we went to the guys and we're like, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to require masks. We're going to require cleaning. Everybody was on board, fully on board. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've, yeah, yeah. We've, we've managed quite well. I mean, Luckily, up until now. You mentioned the brands that you guys engineer and the the, the stuff that you that, that is Tire Group's brands. Yes. So first, talk a bit about what you mean by that Tire Group engineers those tires. I assume that and that also means that they're manufactured elsewhere. Uh, but then also just kind of let's run through the brands that Tire Group has because it may be good for. I think, and I'm I'm somebody who until actually probably until you started working at Tire Group, I just sort of like <laughs> went and bought whatever I was sold uh, yeah. when I had to replace my tires because I've I've also tended not to put too much mileage on my cars, um, but uh, but now I think everybody's looking for that kind of information and and you know if there's a way for people to to spend a little less but get something that's comparable in quality they can feel safe on so. Talk a bit about that. Like, what does it mean for the tire group engineers, the tires? And then what are those brands? What might people compare them to? What should people like look out for? Yeah. So, um, so I don't know if you've, uh, <laughs> have you ever heard like a, well, at least I get this request all the time. I like it. It's always with like, uh, like, uh, it's always an old Cuban dude that calls me and says, eh, yo quiero bueno, barato y bonito. Uh -huh, y, right. Quiero, quiero una bomba, pero no me da la china like i always say like i don't want china you know yeah, no, always no chinese tires yeah yeah especially um, now all the, <laughs> now right now right, it's right. them out even more double whammy right like right. double yeah, yeah no um and so and i always kind of when i first started here we uh, 10 years ago when i was uh first when i first joined the company 10 years ago uh, we were buying a lot from china china was a major market and actually 
the tires that we were getting from China were, were very good. Um, and that was mostly because, yeah, there's a misconception with China, but actually it's not, it's not really a misconception. It's, there are a lot of great quality manufacturers in China, but there are a lot of just guys that take, you know, they cut corners and, um, in, in the same, you know, in China. And, and yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it's what, what it is over there. I don't know if it's their regulations. I don't know if it's their, their, their need to just pump out volume. So they, they, if you, a new manufacturer comes up, go ahead and, you know, and, and go, you know, they, they kind of let them, let them run. So, but when we were buying from China, we were getting good quality product and it, it was mostly, I learned that certain manufacturers have a reputation. And so a lot of the end users don't know the manufacturer. They just know the brand and that's it. And if, if it's a, you know, ping pong boom tire, oh no, 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 I don't want that. And so they don't know. So um, we actually had teamed up with um, a few of the manufacturers years back. And, and so we started basically uh, doing a lot of like our private label stuff. We had, um, you know, we had different partnerships with different major brands. And so the way it works is like uh, a big, let's call, say, uh, call it, you know, Goodyear or whatever. They, what they'll do is they'll say, hey, we want to, we want to give you this line, the specific size of tire, but we only want you to sell it in this specific market. And so, you know, if you were as a, as a businessman or as a wholesaler, if you were just beholden to whatever the many, whatever those major players decided, you really, you'd be pretty limited in, in how, in what you can offer a customer within a market. So we always, the way we did things was in every market, wherever we had exclusivity with whatever brand or, um, or product, we would try to offer a you know different tier so we don't try to offer the bueno the barato the bonito and the all three right so we always made an effort to to try to do that and in doing so we realized that by getting a getting some quality control people and um bringing people on board that knew about the the creating of a tire the manufacturing of a tire that knew the ins and outs of what rubber compounds and and how to build the tire um if we brought them on board, we can actually play and, and do and team up with the right manufacturers and engineer our own tire and buy our own molds and um, do all of these things where, where we can actually provide tires to any market um, that are comparable to any brand. And, um, you know, we've learned a lot in, uh, along the way in the last 10 years. So that was back then we were doing we were teaming up with manufacturing in china and then obviously with all the trade wars and the inconsistency we started shifting uh production so we we produce you know we deal with thailand a lot we buy a lot from thailand uh we do some taiwan you you get we get tires from india and indonesia um you know there are other places uh, that you you know vietnam i mean even japan i mean sumitomo is a major tire brand and and they come from japan and so um so yeah, we we are um, we we started shifting our focus to to a lot of those manufacturers and in, in away from China, um, and and it was um, and it's been great and it's been beneficial. So uh, you know, one of the brands right now that we're really really proud of as a whole, and it was one that it started off. I, I think we I, I believe we started with just doing truck tires for them, and then it, it ventured off into the light truck and and now into the passenger range and. And we're, we're trying to expand that, that gamut of tires is, is Cosmo, C-O-S-M-O tires. And uh, actually in Wynwood, if you go to Wynwood, there's a wall right off the 
right before the 195 and next to the I-95, right across the street from Austin Burke, there's a wall there with a, like four tires. And uh, we, we had like the Cosmo tires painted there. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we started pushing this brand Cosmo because it, the build of the tire was really good. Um, it was, it was, um, and I don't have the, I wish I had the stats, but it was comparable to some of the, like the major players that, you know, that people spend twice as much on. And I mean, so that was one of those private labels that has had a lot of success, success for us. We also promote another brand called Astro Tires. Um, we're going to start working on Orion. Um, so yeah, we, we do push a lot of our, um, our own brands and, and, you know, we, uh, we make an effort to, if we're going to put our name or back it in any way, we, we do make an effort to ensure that the, the factories that are making those tires, regardless of whether they are, they are our brands or not, like we send people, I mean, we have a presence in China and Thailand and Indonesia. We, we, we invest a lot into making sure that people are on the floor, you know, looking at how these factories are working. And so, um, yeah, Cosmo, Cosmo tires is one of those brands that we're really proud of as a whole. And, um, actually we, we, uh, we got a we got a drifting move like a you know like drifting like tired car drifting uh huh yeah okay we have a movement there's a whole movement with Cosmo tires drifting apparently some guy used our tire once for like like and you know for drifting yeah. or whatever one one of these you know small events local events and apparently the the tire grips well like it grips well enough or, or, or like it, it gives like once it wears off like properly. Apparently, it's a great tire for drifting. Again, I'm, I'm not a drifting expert. Yeah, you haven't gotten tried it yourself. No, no, and I'm barely, no, and I, yeah, and I'm, I'm not even a technical tire expert. You know, I just know enough to yeah, be dangerous, yeah, yeah. and I understand my business. But, um, but yeah, the, apparently, there's a huge movement, and a, a lot of the, it's got a major following in that sense. So, we're really proud. We're actually, we target that a lot. Um, I don't know if you, if you go on, on Instagram and use follow Cosmo Tires, um, you'll get, you'll see uh, some of the videos that they've put together with the drifting. Cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we, uh, we do promote a lot of those. And then we have uh, certain, certain exclusivities with certain uh, different brands. Um, another one we have a good deal with is Mickey Thompson. They're very popular in the Jeep space. So we do, we do a lot of, um, do a lot of work with them. Um, yeah. I mean, for the most part, we, we, we pride ourselves on having every tire. I mean, on every size, every application, everything, you know, everything from those big earth moving mining tires I've seen come through here um, to, you know, the everyday tire for, you know, our, our car, our cars. Yeah. Um, so we, we do, uh, we do offer everything and, and we are proud of what we're doing. Um, I know that this pandemic has hit a lot of businesses and it's, you know, it's some, you know, a lot of that is out of, their control. Um, I know that as a company, it, it has impacted us. It, it actually, we started seeing the effects in April, uh, January, February, March, March, it took a bit of a dip at the very end, but March, we were still able to, to do quite well. And, 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 um, yeah, we're, um, although we don't know what the future holds, we, we've managed to keep everybody, you know, all our, all our team members and family members, um, you know, hired and, and, you know, and, and working and, you know, we were working with everybody that is concerned and, yep. you know, on our end. So, yeah. Hey, dude, I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll cut it off anyway, but yeah, thanks for, for doing this. We'll put 
this in an upcoming episode of the podcast. We're going to uh, also put this, the video version of this, online. Uh, but only for people who pay. People have to pay to see you, to subject themselves. Ooh, I got it. I like that. <laughs> Actually, you, hey, are, you are one of our supporters on Patreon, by the way. I know. I can we, see it. We, I should, see we, we, should, we should make note of that. Uh, so, you know, if you want to be like Red, go support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash yeah. Mag. Are we still recording? We are, yeah. I'm not really sure why, but we are. No, wait, wait. This Hold all on. goes in. This all goes in. Wait, is it seamless plug? Shameless. Or shameless? Be shameless. Shameless plugs. But can I be seamless and shameless? Yeah, man. Go for it. All right, hold on. Let me let me get my phone up. I'm not gonna promote myself because I don't. I like my. I keep everything that I do in my life on private, which is weird, right? I'm not a very right, right. right. But hold on. Wait, we got we got we got plugs here. Hold on, everybody. Don't turn off the podcast thing yet. So follow at Cosmo Tires. Okay. Cosmo Tires. That's badass brand. Awesome brand. Like it's that's actually it's, we're. We, we were actually looking to do, I mean, we're, we, there's always like crazy marketing ideas. And I, I always love to just, I got big ears. I always like to listen in with my big ears to these marketing, the, our marketing team, because the stuff they talk about, I'm like, I want to switch departments because these guys are talking about doing like all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's one to look out for. And um, at tire group, that's, you know, that's our, the wholesale as you know the company as a whole uh we you know we'd love to promote ourselves i mean we you can't buy from us directly unless you have a business but um you know you can definitely look at our instagram to get information just basic overall information on tires um tiregroup.com we put up a blog where we basically give you information and now as a consumer if you are you know if you're cash like if you you know consider your the money spent tires are an expensive an, uh, an expense that we all incur and they're not cheap and so it's uh hopefully if you want to get educated on that it's something you got to buy at least once or twice a once a, once a year at least twice a year if you got a, more than one vehicle so um yeah go ahead and follow us there and um, um if you see me tagged on anything i guess if you want to follow me I live my life on private, but I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> like how reluctantly. That was the weirdest plug. Uh, it's just, private, you know what it guess, is? If like, you want to follow I really, me. no, you know what? You know what it is? It's like, an, like the internet is such a polarizing thing for me. Like I really want to give everybody access to the, to my life. But then I like read comments on public <laughs> profiles and I'm like, ah, I don't know. Even though I do like the following for Pancom Podcast, I, I don't know everybody. But uh, Pancom Podcast I, people are good. I heard. Well, the, I haven't met these people in Kansas. Who's in Kansas? Yeah, who knows? I, I mean, I haven't met anybody in the Salina. Well, Salina people. They're good people, but who knows? Who knows where those people are? Yeah. Uh, somebody actually, one of our followers, was watching our Instagram live yesterday, and commented that uh, I looked like I'm Seth Rogen's brother. I think is what he said. Oh, I see it though. I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I buy that. But anyway, it's this like is this Seth has gone Rogen. on way too long. It's like Seth Rogen and Ryan Gosling had a like a big-headed baby. A big-headed baby. That's actually a true story. This is why I'm wearing this hat right now and in all these videos because my giant hat head my giant head has so much giant hair on it. Uh, it's not even for the look. It's because if I wear these headphones without the hat, then I have like an indentation in my haircut. Around my you should ears. get bigger headphones because proportionally it will make your head look smaller. 
Oh, good call. Good call. Yeah. So not only did I give you seamless plugs, that was super seamless. Nobody knew they were coming. No. no. I gave you advice for you big headed people. Wear big earphones. That's why I keep you around. <laughs> All right, man. With that, right. we're going to end this. This has gone on too long. I know. I agree. <laughs> Later. And that's it. We're done. Thanks for listening to Pankong Podcast. As always, remember that you can support the work we're doing here and on the rest of DadeMag.com for as little as a buck a month on Patreon. That also gets you some exclusive content and other perks. That's Patreon.com slash DadeMag. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash DadeMag. As always, you can find past episodes of this podcast at dadmag.com slash podcast and follow Bangkong Podcast on all of the social media things at Bangkong Podcast. Leave us reviews, share the episode on social media so your friends find us. Make sure that you're subscribed wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Remember that you can also go to dadmag.com for more stuff, including episodes of Step Into the Sandbox, a podcast that is about interviews with creatives hosted by David Vidhano. Uh, or just search for Step Into the Sandbox wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. With that, we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Wash your hands. Thank you.